So think about that if you're around. So this evening's talk has a long title, Unburdening the Heart, Inner Freedom, and the Path of Awareness. Somehow I came up with that a few months ago, and now it's my destiny to talk about it tonight. It's a big topic, big topic. It's said that the Buddha was essentially interested in one thing, which is the nature of, suffer- nature of suffering and liberation from suffering. And when we talk about the liberation from suffering, um, the Buddha talked about it. He talked about it was the heart's release, you know, letting go of the torments of heart. And so this practice, this path of meditation, is very much dedicated and focused on training the mind to let go of these torments. You know? And when we talk about torments, we mean many different things. But certainly if we want to talk about it in a general way, it's a sense of discontent in the mind, uh, suffering in the mind, conflict in the mind, inner struggle, confusion, you know, the kinds of things that one inevitably encounters when one, one begins to practice awareness and, and starts paying attention to what our actual experience is, one realizes that there's a lot going on in there uh, when we start sitting with our minds and pay, paying attention to it. And it's not all good news. You know, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of challenges that we face. Um, just even sitting for 40 minutes, which is a relatively short period of time. It's just look at the range of experiences, how often resistance or boredom or restlessness or a desire to get away arises. Or, uh, sure, there are definitely times when one experiences peace and relaxation and one is very happy to be practicing. There's some joy. There's a sense of faith or confidence in the practice. But so often it, it shifts around a lot. You know, we can have those moments. Uh, those moments are important moments. You know, they're, they're significant. They, they help balance a lot of the difficulties that we encounter, and, and they help give us confidence and faith to keep going. Um, but, but when we look at the mind in a very direct way, that's what we often find, is, is this kind of burdened heart, this, this heart that's very conflicted and contracted. And what it's burdened by is, is it's burdened by its own conditioning. You know, it's habitual thinking and reactivity. And that's one of the insights that, once again, one inevitably discovers when one begins to pay attention. It's just how habitual the mind is. Uh, sometimes we start off practice very naive, thinking our, you know, having a sense that our thought process is very creative, very interesting, uh, very exciting, uh, worth, worthy of our energy, uh, and all of that. And then we start sitting and watching the mind and we begin to see the same record playing over and over again. Uh, we see s- the same dialogues, the same stories, the same plays, the same dramas, the same fantasies, the same impatience or annoyance or irritation, replaying things that have happened in the past, constantly thinking about the future and planning. Uh, and so we begin to get a sense of the mind and what, what, what state the mind is in. And of course what it's in is it's in a state of habit that a lot of our thinking is very habitual, it's very circular, it keeps bringing us back to the same place. So when we begin to talk about unburdening the heart, what we're also talking about in a very significant way is unburdening ourselves from the past. When we talk about letting go of the past or unburdening ourselves of the past, it doesn't mean that we forget the past. You know, it doesn't mean that we kind of block out memories or we try to dismiss 
memory or devalue uh, the, our histories because a lot can be learned from our histories, no doubt about that. But also not attaching to the past. And not attaching to our past conditioning, the kinds of things that we've learned. The problem with our attachment to the past is that we have a strong tendency to bring the past into the present moment. It's very challenging, very difficult to move into your current conditions, to move into the here and now without that burden of conditioning, without all sorts of preconceptions or ideas about, your, about oneself and about one's situation that one's in, and also preconceptions about what's going to bring happiness or peace. And so when we begin to talk about unburdening or freeing the heart, what we're talking about is developing an ability to move into the here and now without preconceptions, you know, without all sorts of judgments about how things should be or shouldn't be, you know, without the reactive mind, but entering into the here and now in a very fresh, alive, awake way. Inner freedom is the capacity that we all have. It's the capacity that we have to relate to the here and now with this quality of freshness so that we can learn, so that we can learn something new. That's what insight is. Insight is seeing into things in a very fresh, direct way. Insight isn't secondhand knowledge. It's not something we accumulate. Insight is us seeing directly for ourselves what the nature of the situation that we're in. What's, what is a wise or compassionate response to this particular moment in time? You know? Wisdom and compassion, they're not formulas. Meditation isn't a formula. It's developing the capacity to see spontaneously, in a fresh way, what needs to be done. What is going to lead to freedom? So one step that we can take, one step that we can begin to take in terms of beginning to relate to the present moment, unencumbered by our past conditioning, unencumbered by all sorts of ideas we have that we impose on our experience. In other words, to enter into the here and now with a fresh open heart, a fresh open mind. Perhaps one of the, in this, in this in some ways, is one of the easiest, most direct steps that we can take. It doesn't take 20 years, necessarily, to take this step. You know, we can begin to do it right this very moment in time. <coughs> and that's cultivating a wise and compassionate attitude in our practice. You know, it's developing a wise and compassionate attitude in our practice. Whether it's our <coughs> practice on the cushion, when we sit, or whether it's our practice in everyday life. And when we talk about a wise attitude in practice, one way that we can let go of an enormous amount of suffering, and I'll use the sitting as an example, enormous amount of suffering is to let go completely of any attachment to a particular agenda. Just think about the freedom 
in the ease, in the mind, if one sits and there's no agenda about what is supposed to happen or what should be happening from one moment to the next. That the mind is completely allowing and accepting of whatever arises. Where's the suffering in that? You know, where's the suffering in that? There isn't any. There isn't any. It's just open-hearted awareness of things as they are. There's a tremendous amount of inner spaciousness in that attitude. When we can begin to let go of the comparing, the evaluating, the judging, the idea about this should be happening in this particular moment, I should be concentrated, I shouldn't be wandering, I should be somewhere where I'm not. I should have progressed a lot more. I've been at this for two years or three years or five years or 10 years or 15 years. And by now I should be somewhere where I'm not. How come? And of course this attachment to an agenda is of course deeply conditioned. You know, even though it's profoundly simple. Actually it's one of the simplest things we can do is actually sit down and not have an agenda. Just sit down and make an effort to be present with whatever arises without any particular attachment to a result. To let go of the evaluating couldn't be any more simple. Couldn't be any more simple. But it's very difficult. Very difficult. We're asking a lot of ourselves to cultivate that attitude, that kind of inner spaciousness, that ability to be very accepting of what arises. And it's because we have so many preconceptions, so many ideas that we've been filled up with in terms of what our experience actually should be or what it could be. And of course this agenda gets created by a lot of things that we learn along the way. Um, one reads spiritual books um, and as valuable as spiritual books can be, sometimes there's a downside to it. And the downside is that oftentimes it gets up our expectations. You know, it gets up a, a sense of, of what is supposed to be happening. And what we often don't realize is that the people that are writing those books, hopefully anyway, have been practicing a very long time. A very long time. And they've developed that attitude over the course of time, which is allowing, which is accepting. And that's an attitude that one can actually cultivate and develop because as one develops an ability to be allowing and accepting, that creates a space for inquiry, for taking a look at what, how things are. In other words, if we want, insight meditation means to see things as they are. But if we're not allowing of things as they are, it's impossible to see things as they are. Because all our ideas, all our reactions get in the way of that. It prevents that kind of inquiry or deep looking which is required on this particular path, certainly the Buddhist path, has everything to do with this inquiry into the nature of our suffering. To take a look at our suffering, to understand its cause or origin, to understand how we can let go of suffering, and also to see clearly for ourselves what the path is. That takes you know, a lot of attention to learn those kinds of things, to make those kind of discoveries. You know, the kind of education that we have, the kind of culture we live in, doesn't encourage that kind of inquiry. 
more what's encouraged in this culture, in this society, in our education, is when we're suffering to get away from that suffering, to try to make ourselves feel better. And usually that means reaching for some particular experience, some kind of escape. And sometimes people think, well, in Buddhism, you know, it's all about suffering. But no, it's not. It's about understanding the nature of suffering so that we can be free from suffering. You know, it's not about getting lost in suffering. It's not a negative trip at all. But, it, it, but what the Buddha discovered, and this is something for all of us to take a look at ourselves, is that until we make friends, until we're allowing, until we discover some space, until we can hold our suffering with loving attention, we won't understand the nature of it. We won't understand what's causing our suffering. And we certainly won't understand what the healing or the letting go process is about. Because all we're going to be doing is pushing it away if we don't do that. Some of the signs of, some of the common um, problems that come up, some of the signs that reflect this attachment to an agenda. And I've never met anybody um, that didn't go through a very lengthy process of learning this particular lesson. It's not something that we learn very quickly. It's very subtle. It can be very obvious sometimes when, when people come into interviews and they start talking about their experience. Sometimes it's very obvious what the agenda is. But then often when people have been practicing for a while, the agenda gets more subtle. You know, there's certain kinds of states of mind that we're looking for, or certain kinds of subtle experiences that we're clinging to, ideas that we, we think. Um, but some of the signs uh, uh, that reflect this kind of suffering or the burdening of the heart that comes out of a kind of an unwise attitude or, or, or attitude of non-acceptance is you, one can see it in one's effort in practice. You know, taking a look at the kind of effort that we make in practice. And so often, um, that energy of striving, you know, that energy of working really hard and kind of gritting your teeth and, and working really hard and trying to make something happen, um, you know, that's, that, underneath that is there's an agenda. There's something that you want. There's something that we're trying to experience. It's fine to have aspirations for, for liberation. No doubt about it. One wouldn't practice if one wasn't motivated for some kind of liberation. One wouldn't be willing to go through what one goes, goes through unless one had certain aspirations. But an attachment to an agenda is very different. It's that constant comparing, evaluating, or clinging to a particular idea about a particular experience. And my guess is liberation is going to be a surprise. You know, that's my guess. It's not exactly going to fit into some idea that we have about it. You know, that there's going to be some process of discovery. And that surprise will not just be a momentary surprise, but an ongoing surprise. So, this, so looking at the quality of effort that one makes in practice, noticing when there's that striving or pushing to try to make something happen. Oftentimes, out of an attachment to an agenda, one has the burden, deep burden for the heart, of, of being clinging to particular expectations. You know, and, and I think in this culture, certainly around here, people have very high expectations of themselves. I've noticed that. Very high expectations, not low expectations. Sometimes low self-esteem. Uh, but that low self-esteem often comes out of their expectations. 
uh, because they're very high. You know, the way we measure success and failure, you know, it's so rigid sometimes. Uh, it's so defined by uh, the culture that we're in. It's something really important to begin to investigate for oneself if one wants to unburden one's heart, which is this whole attachment to success and failure. Beginning to question that. Um, you know, the coming and going, the rising and the falling of experiences and you know, constantly reading about stories of people achieving, you know, really lofty places and then falling. You know, something happens. You know, and their reputation is gone. And, you know, just, and, and, and what is success? And what is failure? You know, seeing that their concepts, they're, they're self-created. They're self-driven often. You know, they come out of our past. That's where we bring our past, into our expectations, putting demands on ourselves and on our practice. Very helpful to see that because one way that we can begin to tune in on those expectations is when we feel discouraged. Very common syndrome in practice is when we feel discouraged or disappointed. You know, when we slide a little bit into despair or resignation about ourselves. Or when we slide into self-doubt. You know, self-doubt is an inquiry. Self-doubt is based on the past. When things aren't going well, we begin to question ourselves. And that self-doubt can undermine us, becomes a tremendous burden for us. It's very difficult to relate to the here and now, or to learn to respond to life with equanimity and confidence if we're, if we're burdened by that energy of self-doubt. And so often self-doubt comes out of the self-imposed, or we absorb other people's impositions of uh, expectations, ideas about success and failure, worthiness and unworthiness, carry all sorts of ideas with us, and they burden us and, and weigh us down. Noticing the kind of energy that you bring to practice. You know, one, one common thing to look for is when practice begins to get very grim. That's a good sign. That's a good sign that something's going on. It's a sign that we're carrying something with us. You know, we're carrying something with us. Maybe it's a sense of obligation. Uh, maybe it's an expectation. Maybe it's a particular agenda. We're getting disappointed with ourselves. You know, that sense of disappointment in yourself. Taking a look at that. What does that mean to be disappointed in oneself? Usually what it means is that we're not meeting our expectations. You know? And the interesting thing about practice is, is that we're constantly confronted with conditions, whether it's in the body or mind, that aren't in our control. Yeah. And that can be very disappointing to us. But the, but the reality is that's actually an insight. You see? You see? If you see that, that's an insight. If you see that the mind isn't quiet and you see that it's restless, that's an insight to see that, to see the mind that's bored or restless, or agitated, or the mind that keeps wandering. Every time we see that, that's actually an insight. So we should pat ourselves on the back for that, for that time, okay? When we see it, okay? Because what we're seeing is how the mind works, and that's what we need to see. That's, if we're going to let go of this burden of conditioning, you know, that limits us, that, that keeps us locked into fear, or desire, or fantasy, or whatever the, whatever the burden might be, the attachment to a particular agenda. To free ourselves of that, we need to get to know the mind very intimately. We need to get to know what our patterns and habits are. And the only way we do that 
is to be very allowing of what arises in practice. Allowing doesn't mean indulging in your experience. It means being very accepting, bringing loving attention to the experience. You know, meeting whatever arises, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, with love, you know, rather than judgment, rather than preconceptions. One reflection that I started using maybe a few years ago, and it actually worked out pretty well, and I don't think I got it from anybody else, actually, uh, was this re- reflection that whatever arises is okay. You know? And I used that a lot in my sitting. Like I would sit and I would just say, you know, whatever arises is fine. doesn't matter. You know, whatever arises, whatever my experience is, it's going to be fine. All I'm going to try to do is be mindful of it. You know, and apply some wisdom to whatever is coming up, you know, through being mindful of it. And it made such a huge difference. You know, it made such a huge difference. All of a sudden, there was so much more relaxation in the mind. You know, all of a sudden, I could let go of that burden, that attachment, that attachment to a particular agenda, and then I could let things be, just what they are, and try to learn from them. You know, try to... Repeat that? I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> uh, to let things be? Just what your insight was or whatever. I, I missed the first time. Yeah, I think, just keep waiting, I'll repeat myself probably. I do that a lot, so... Just in case anybody misses it, I repeat. Okay, so whatever arises is okay. Having that attitude, extremely helpful in practice because what happens is about 95% of our suffering drops away. You're sleepy, you're tired, you're restless, you're in pain, whatever it is. It doesn't mean that you're passive in the face of all those things so that you don't take them up and work with them. You know, whatever, whatever arises is okay. That contemplation is not the same thing as you're okay and I'm okay. Because mostly you're not okay and I'm not okay. okay? So it's not denial you know, that everything's just great. Uh, it isn't. It's more an attitude in terms of how we're going to meet the difficulties that arise. You know, how to meet that with an attitude like that. Life gets so much easier. Things become so much more workable. It's all the ideas that we impose on ourselves in our practice and our experience that creates that tension, that creates the doubt and the discouragement and the despair that we feel. It's true not just on the cushion, but in life in general too. Anger arises. Fear arises, you know. This disappoints us. We get upset by it. We're impatient with ourselves because those experiences arise. That's not a healthy attitude. That's not a wise or compassionate attitude. All that does is reinforce those energies, those difficult energies. It doesn't allow us to heal those energies. It doesn't allow us to investigate or inquire into their nature. It just reinforces it, gives them energy, those judgments about those experiences. So fear arises. So what? Is anybody in this room, does anybody in this room not experience fear? Be honest. Okay. So do we need to be ashamed or embarrassed or judging that particular energy? No, of course not. We all experience fear. Does anybody never get angry? Yeah. It's not, my hand isn't up. You know, that's for sure. 
No, right. Okay, so these are, these are emotions, you know, they're energies, they're reactions, and, and they're not pleasant, and we don't want to act from that place, but they do arise in our consciousness. They're conditioned states of mind, they're conditioned reactions that we all experience. Yet, we hide them, we, we conceal them, we judge them, we push them down, we judge ourselves, we feel shame or embarrassment, or even sometimes we get caught by them and act out in very unskillful ways. And that's not allowing either. You know, that's indulging in it or getting caught by it. Allowing that attitude of allowing is really the first step because then we need to bring mindfulness to the experience. And that, and that wise attitude of being more allowing creates the right conditions for mindfulness. Mindfulness practice becomes much easier. It's, mindfulness is so much harder when we have an attitude, well, I don't want to have that experience. Well, mindfulness is, by its nature, is non-judging, open-hearted attention. That's its nature. No matter what you think about it, or whether you think it's a good thing, or maybe sometimes you think it's a bad thing, depends on what you're mindful of. But mindfulness is just very loving, non-judging, without any preconceptions about the experience at all. Just meets things just as they are. The pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the neutral experiences in life, it just meets them and allows us to get to know that experience and see it clearly just for what it is. Okay? When we have an attitude that is allowing things to arise, then mindfulness becomes much more natural. You know, we begin to free up that energy of mindfulness and we then can begin to allow mindfulness to rest on the experience that we're giving room for. In other words, if you give room for sleepiness to arise or restlessness or judging, or fear, or anger, if you give some room for that experience to arise and then bring mindfulness to the experience, particularly if you've developed and trained the mind to pay attention in a sustained way, then it's possible to learn from that experience because now we're seeing it as it is. Now we're seeing experiences just as it is. And what the Buddha discovered was that's the liberation that comes through practice, is getting in touch with things as they are. Getting in touch with the nature of our suffering, just as it is. Getting in touch with the nature of what causes our suffering, just as it is. Getting to know the nature of liberation, just as it is. Getting to know the path, what leads to liberation. So mindfulness opens that door for wisdom to grow. For wisdom to grow. Mindfulness isn't the whole practice. Being allowing isn't the whole practice. The practice is about cultivating wisdom and compassion in response to the conditions that we meet. That's how I would say define inner freedom, is that ability to respond to whatever situation you're in with wisdom and compassion. That's freedom. When we respond to the conditions in the here and now with our past conditioning, with our habitual reactions or preconceptions. That's not freedom, that's limitation. And that limitation creates suffering. It knocks us out of harmony with the present moment. It knocks us out of harmony with things as they are. We're not responding to things as they are. We're not responding in a way that leads to freedom. Instead, we're just imposing, or the past is imposing itself on the present. And the past is very confused. Our conditioning leads us into a lot of confusion. (coughs) The Buddha talked a lot about this confusion. And the basic fundamental confusion that the Buddha talked about was 
the confusion around what was going to bring happiness and what wasn't. And that's, that's the dilemma. You know, as smart as we are, as clever as we are, and all the achievements and everything that we've accomplished as human beings, and, you know, we have accomplished quite a bit, but we really haven't accomplished this one. You know, we really haven't accomplished this understanding of how to live with each other. You know, how to live with each, with each other without harming either ourselves or others. Just that basic. Think about how basic that insight is. You know, it's not rocket science. You know, it's not rocket science to realize that, yeah, it's really important to get along with each other and not to hurt or harm each other. But that's very difficult to understand. And one of the reasons that we don't get there, one of the reasons we don't wake up or understand that problem is because our conditioning our conditioning reinforces this sense of a separate self. Something separate from nature, something separate from the rest of the planet. Our conditioning, so much of our conditioning, and this is one of the insights that one can have in practice, and uh, I kind of chuckle at it sometimes now, uh, but I have to say when I first started seeing it, it, it was not really, didn't bring a lot of happiness. Um, but it's this sense of, looking at your thinking process, for instance, and kind of reflecting or just observing how often our thoughts refer back to ourselves. Have you ever noticed that? You're thinking. We're always thinking about ourselves. Ourselves in relationship to this, ourselves in relationship to that. It, you know, it's, it's what one teacher that I study with, the Chan Master I study with, is it's the suffering of obsessive self-referentiality. <laughs> Obsessive self-referentiality. Always, everything refers back to me. You know, everything refers back to me or mine. You know? It's a very small world that, that we're living in in our minds. Very small world. We don't really get to see the bigger picture. And the reason we don't get to see the bigger picture is because there's not a lot of room in the mind of ours. It's very cluttered. You know, it's very cluttered from our conditioning. It's very cluttered with all sorts of ideas about what's going to bring happiness, and we invest a tremendous amount of energy in things that aren't going to bring happiness in any kind of lasting way. We invest in all sorts of, th uh, sorts of things uh, to bring peace, and really they, they may bring momentary happiness and, and uh, a lot of pleasure, but the reality is that they often uh, are a source of a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry and a lot more desire. It's very hard to satisfy ourselves, when we're focused on the external conditions in our life. Uh, very difficult to experience peace when one, one's happiness solely relies on the conditions one finds oneself in. I mean, I for one have never found, uh, I get a few more years maybe left, uh, found perfect conditions. You know, the planet, far from perfect. My apartment, far from perfect. My neighbors, far from perfect. You know, the city, life, everything, you know, whatever you look at, the weather, the temperature, the, the seasons, whatever it is. Challenges, you know, think, conditions aren't in our control. And we leave ourselves deeply vulnerable when we invest our happiness on those conditions. And this isn't to devalue the conditions or, or to ignore them or to develop indifference. Conditions in our life matter. We should try to make the planet a better place. We should take care of ourselves in the best way we can. But we also have to have the bigger picture. 
we also have to hold the bigger picture, which is to know that we can stay focused on ourselves and try to focus getting our needs and desires met, but the world's a bigger place than that. You know, there are other people on this planet, and we need to leave that, let that fact in. But as long as we're caught up in that sense that, of separateness, you know, the sense of self, uh, it's very difficult to do that. So compassion becomes kind of an ideal. But compassion is, is really wisdom. Wisdom and compassion are very much the same thing. Compassion is seeing that there's this non-separation, that we're all in this together. And so compassion really is a wise response to that fact. It's, a, it's, a, it's wise to see the non-separation of beings, to see that we're all in this together. So compassion is a very natural response that comes out of a mind that's wise and clear. So as we begin to take more responsibility for our happiness, which I think meditation is very much about, you know, it's, it's beginning to turn one's attention inward, not just focused on the conditions that might be provoking us. You know, instead of just paying attention to those conditions, we also begin to pay attention to how we're relating to the here and now. You know, what are we doing in relationship to this traffic jam that we're in? What, what are we doing in relationship to our boss who's giving us a hard time? What are we doing in relationship to, to our family members who, who are provoking us in certain ways? Or what are we doing with our desires or our fantasies for other people or for other things? You know, how are we, what are, what are we doing in relationship? And so as practice matures, that becomes more and more of an important question. You know, more and more of the practice is that. It's looking at oneself, looking at what we're doing from moment to moment. You know, getting to know that in a very intimate way. And what we see is that you know, we're all very different and our conditioning's very different, but there are patterns, and the Buddha talked a lot about these patterns of conditioning that human beings have a tendency to. In the, in the pattern, the strong tendency is that we have a strong tendency to cling to things that are pleasant in our life. If we have pleasant experiences, there's a strong tendency to hold on or cling to those particular experiences. Another pattern is when we encounter pain, but things that make us uncomfortable. Okay, there's a strong tendency to react with aversion, contraction. There's the pain experience, but then the mind reacts contracting around it. It doesn't meet pain in open-hearted awareness usually. It meets it with contraction or fear, withdrawing from it, pulling away from it, pushing it away. If there's a painful emotion, strong tendency is to want to get rid of that painful emotion. You know, when I teach fear, working with fear every winter, you know, it's one of the first questions I ask is, for hands is, how many people want to get rid of their fear? And just about everybody raises their hand. You know, just about everybody raises and I And I always tell them, well, you're in the wrong place. Uh, because practice isn't about getting rid of painful emotions. You know? It's about learning to bring wisdom and compassion to painful emotions. And in that process, there is a letting go and a healing that happens. But with that attitude of trying to get rid of something that's difficult or painful, uh, it doesn't work. It just creates more fear in the mind, particularly with fear. And if you try to get rid of your fear, it's going to create more fear instead of entering into a mindful or a wise relationship to that fear. So what we do in practice in a very practical way leads to tremendous freedom of the heart, tremendous freedom, 
which is we begin to bring mindfulness to our reactions to things. As practice matures, so much of practice becomes just that. We begin to see how we react, whether it's clinging to the pleasure, pleasant things in life, do we push away the unpleasant things, and oftentimes another reaction, which is very subtle, is that we tend to ignore or space out when we're encountering neutral or neither painful or unpleasant, neither painful or pleasant experiences. Okay? So beginning to see those reactions is a door into freedom. Allowing the reactions to arise, that attitude of, oh, there's that reaction of aversion. There's my desire of clinging. There's, there, there I am holding on to something that's pleasant, you know, wanting more of it. You know, just, just allowing that energy to be there, but bringing mindfulness and wisdom to it. And when we bring mindfulness to that energy of clinging or attachment or aversion, what happens is that slowly but surely, mindfulness has an effect on that particular reaction. And the effect is it begins to, the reaction begins to lose its power. <coughs> that conditioned reaction, the one we've been practicing, the one that's so often been unconscious now in the past that we keep reinforcing through being unconscious, now we're beginning to wake up to it and we're beginning to recognize it, hold it with awareness, and it begins to lose its power. It begins to lose its power. And in that process, we begin to discover some space where the mind was extremely reactive in the past. Now there's some space for something else to occur. And what else can occur is now we can learn how to respond. There's more space in the mind, so now we can respond, not just react. We can experience pleasure, enjoy it, for sure. Pleasure is to be enjoyed. But then when it passes, let it go. No need to cling to it. The clinging is just going to create suffering. We can see that for ourselves. When something painful arises, we don't have to go looking for it. We don't necessarily want to cling to the pain. But can we open our hearts to the pain? You know, can we open our hearts to difficult emotions or difficult interactions that we have with others or painful reactions that we might have? What happens is, is, if we can do that, we begin to live fearlessly. We begin to live fearlessly. Because now we can begin to meet life the way it's unfolding. It's not in our control. Pleasure and pain, it rises and passes away. Now we can meet that experience and we start developing faith or confidence in ourselves. We begin to develop equanimity, the freedom of equanimity where we're not reacting so much for and against everything that's coming our way. We're not overwhelmed by the experiences that are coming. Now we're beginning to get a sense that things are actually workable. Whatever comes our way, we begin to get a sense of, wait a second, no matter how difficult it is, I have some skills. I can work with that situation. You know? I might not be a happy ending by the end, but there might be some learning that happens. There might be some maturing or wisdom that comes out of that. I might be a bit more compassionate when I'm done with that particular form of suffering, whatever that situation is. And when the mind is open, allowing, and investigating, that's exactly what happens. It happens to all of us. That's exactly what happens is we can learn from our experience. In other words, we can develop insight from the experience that we're having. It's not just something to be experienced on the cushion. It's not something theoretical. It's not something lofty that has, one has to practice for 30 years. 
One can have insight at a family gathering, you know, any situation that might be challenging. Okay. So being mindful of one's reactions. So finally, one of the freedoms and I think one of the profound joys that one experiences in practice, which is this um, capacity to live in the here and now, you know, to begin to appreciate the present moment. You know, so often with the untrained mind, you know, with the mind that is so conditioned and so contracted and so tight, that's untrained, that hasn't worked with itself or been with itself or practiced awareness or mindfulness. Uh, we go through life extremely preoccupied, so often disconnected, you know, from the experience that, are, that, that we're in. So, uh, with practice, we really develop this very natural ability to begin to relax into the here and now. You know, there's a sense of connectedness. You know? When you go for a walk, you feel the breeze. You know, you, do, you smell the flowers. You, you experience spring fully, you know, because you're there for it. The mind is uncluttered. It's clear. It's open. It's awake. You know, so a lot of joy, a lot of pleasure can arise in that mind. And also practice becomes much less, life becomes much less fearful. You know, because we're no longer caught totally in those states of mind such as self-doubt or fear or anxiety, that more space is arising in the mind. There's an ability to, to uh, be with whatever you're doing. When you're in relationship with others, for instance, it's it becomes more possible to actually be present, you know, where there's some energy in the relationship, no matter what the nature of the relationship is. You know, it's fundamentally different when you're present with others. And it's one of the gifts and one of the joys that one can offer through practice. You know, we're, we're practicing not just for ourselves, but for others. And one of the things, one of the great um, gifts that we can give each other is that ability to be present. You know, that ability to be able to listen. Or when we speak, we're actually present. We're speaking from our hearts, you know, rather than our heads, or rather than from our reactivity. That's where I'm going to stop. Okay, let's sit for a couple minutes. Show is on the road. Okay, well, maybe lead off now. Okay, George. Okay. So, Keep it know, short, though. Uh, wonderful talk. Yeah, yeah. I see a lot of progress has been made on my own side. I try to relate different types of experiences. Good. I have now... You're walking along the sidewalk and it's snowy and icy, and then suddenly you you know you slip, and yeah. for a period of a moment you're in like you don't know where you are. You don't know whether you're grounded mm -hmm. or you're not. Yep. And you don't know necessarily where you're going to land, and etc. So what happens to George is something happens. 
he has either a reaction or something is being done. You know, uh -huh. it's not always George's negative reactions or reactions per se. Yeah. And then you have this emotional coming up or whatever this this thing is. You know, you begin yeah. to feel. Yeah. And then what happens is you become mindful. So suddenly you that little skinny piece gets conditioned, gets in a sense. It's controlled because now you're mindfully saying, "Hey, you're off on a tangent. You're having a re you're having a reaction to this situation, and you are mindful." And then you say, "Okay, well, then calm down and take a breath." Oh, you can feel your feet in the ground, and you kind of get through around it, and you get and you get mindful, and and the calmness brings. I hate to use the word because, but the calmness seems to bring a little bit of peace and control. Yeah. You know, you're not flying off on the ice anymore. Right. 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 Yeah, but, no. And is that a bad thing? No, but the problem is is that then the, the aggravation, the internal dialogue, like two talking heads that I'm having, and 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 and, and the pain that it causes, I, I don't know, I, I've not been able to look at the reasons why those things are taking place. Why does it continue to be like that? Why do you continue to have reactions? But there's a Pretty easy. This that's simple. A lot simple. of suffering, a lot of self-talk. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. Okay. The whole thing was fixed. <coughs> the meeting before I got there, they knew what they were going right, to do. Right, right. But right, but the, re the reason that suffering keeps going is because it's a habit, and, and habits don't change overnight. And you know, George, relatively speaking, I know I know you've been at it for a while and you've okay. been really diligent. Yeah, you were but, talking about expectations. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, you might have unrealistic expectations if you think you you're going to... high expectations. But when you said having high expectations, I thought of something that would make you laugh. So you don't know how Quickly. low down there I am. My expectations have to be high because I'm at the It's all relative, right? Yeah. yeah, it's relative, right. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is have no expectations, and then you're uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah, yeah. See, um, the wisdom, the wisdom. It sounds good. I know. The wisdom piece says I can't accept it the way it is. Right. Uh, so that's the wisdom piece. The wisdom piece. The part of having the wisdom says, listen, those reactions need to change at some point because they're not productive. Now, the wisdom says that that shouldn't be like that. Yeah, but but no, the wisdom isn't saying isn't saying it shouldn't be like that. The wisdom is saying that's how it is, and this is what I'm going to do to cultivate more freedom or less right. reactivity I'll, I'll in my life. Yeah, no, no, no. That's what I see. But that's a different process. Okay. But that's a, that's a different process because what you have to do is, you know, I'm going to keep this short because I want to okay. make sure other people get in here. Okay. But what you have to do is be patient and keep working with your reactions without any expectation that they're going to change. And they will change. I'm sure they'll change if you keep being mindful of them. But you have to have that attitude of, not having that expectation that this reaction shouldn't have happened because it's so habit. I mean, you've only been practicing for a few years and you've been practicing this rea these reactions for years and years and years and years and years. So, okay, right. So, so the point is, with you, the attitude really, you can cultivate this attitude where, okay, whatever that reaction is, is it's okay, but I am going to try to respond in a less reactive way. But that means bringing awareness to the reaction itself in bringing awareness to it means not having preconceptions or judgments about the reaction, but bringing awareness to it and then trying to discern what you need to do or how you need to respond to that particular reaction. I'll let you go, but I'm just going to say that at some yeah. point in time, what I'm trying to do is find the part of the discerning piece. 
Well, I'm at the whole frontal part. I'm not able to discern what I need to do. Not yet. Okay. Not yet. But, but thank you. But that will become clearer as you're more mindful of your reactions. Then what I said is space arises. A little bit of room, a little bit of pause, a little bit of inner silence arises. And then discernment will come in. Okay. Okay? But you need that space first. Okay. But, it's, but you're right. The mindfulness piece, you know, it, it's not the whole path, but it's a big piece of it right now. And, and the attitude, though, is crucial because otherwise it gets very discouraging. Right. Well, see, the problem with our expectations is that um, it, the expectations begin to get in the way. In other words, it's fine to have an aspiration. And, and like, say one wants to be fearless. One has an aspiration for fearlessness. Okay, I say, okay, so fine. That, that's a, it'd be a good thing to be fearless. But then there's fear. And then there's the state of things. And so if we attach to that idea of fearlessness, then we, that gets in the way of opening our hearts to our fear. Okay? It begins to interfere with that inquiry process, of that open-hearted process. But you're right, for many of us, when we want something, there's an immediate expectation. And so we need to get to know how we impose that expectation on ourselves. And also, let me just say something about expectations is that oftentimes we're so busy with our expectations and getting them met that we don't actually notice progress in our practice. Like, I know you, pr you know, pretty well. Not real well, but pretty well, right? We've, we've worked together for a while. I know you're a lot freer and that you've experienced a lot of fruit in your practice. But you might be carrying around an idea that, hey, I should be somewhere. I should really be this place. But the fact is, in that process of having, being attached to that expectation, we're actually missing some of the transformation that's happening. And mostly transformation is gradual and we're not, we don't always notice it because we have some preconception about what it's supposed to look like. 
And so that's some, that's some of the problem too. But yeah, it's very difficult to want something without getting attached to a particular agenda or attached to a particular expectation. And it, a lot of that is our conditioning. You know, a lot of it is our conditioning. And, and in practice, you know, we hear about all these great things and we work really hard. So it's doubly difficult in some ways. Uh, you know, in, in, in this planet, you know, you know, you, you, you're taught like in some ways, you know, that model of if you work hard, you'll be successful. But that's not true. There's a lot of people working very hard and they really haven't become that, quote, conventionally successful, right? I mean, you know, it, 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 it's delusion in the mind. And we see stuff in meditation, well, you know, this, th I should be experiencing Nibbana by now or I should be at the 14th stage of insight meditation or whatever, whatever your, one's reference is. Um, and then, and then it, it obstructs the path. You know, it gets in the way. And in what we need to do is understand that mechanism. How do we attach to particular agendas? You know, what, and what, I'm, what I was pointing out in my talk was is that when we feel a lot of self-doubt or discouragement or despair, those states of mind are coming out of certain expectations of being attached to a particular agenda and their forms of suffering. So what we need to do is take a look at those feelings of discouragement and despair and not reinforce them. And in that process, we begin to let that go. I don't know if that's answering your question, but yeah. Um, my question, I guess, is I, you talked about being open-minded, you know, the suffering and pleasurable events and then painful events or situations or experiencing those. I, through pleasurable events, painful ones always come along, and I'm confused about that and how to be open to that can you give me an example of something that might be pleasurable <laughs> that's not deeply personal <laughs> or, or personal enough so that I can use it and, and talk about it because I don't I don't I, I don't know if the pleasure is it like what what why does the pleasure inherently turn into something painful that's what I don't quite get I mean there's pleasurable experiences they end and then painful experiences come in like, yeah, okay, try to think of an example. Okay, I'll use this from a past example. Okay, Not good. Current Not current, yeah. right, past, right. Yeah. We're safe. Using drugs was Okay, past, definitely, okay. yeah. Using right. drugs was pleasurable for me. Correct. Then it became painful. Right, and right. every time I use drugs, because I'm in recovery now, but every time I use drugs, right. then the pain would come. Exactly, exactly. It felt good when it was happening, when I was using Right, exactly. In, 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 in the... The point with that is that it's, it's what we, that we're relying on a very impermanent form of happiness to bring us peace. And so when we do that, inevitably pain and suffering follows. Okay. Right. Inevitably. Right. It's, 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 and you know, what we use often is very unskillful ways to experience that happiness and peace. And, you know, drugs is one way, but we can, do, we can use money and power and sex and all sorts of things in unskillful ways. Uh, and what it, is, what it reflects is an attachment to that as a source of happiness. And, and, you know, the self is really locked in that. And it could be even sometimes a desire for healing in some level, but it's, it's born of confusion in the mind about what, what we're actually going to get out of that particular experience. And so what happens often is we get deeply disappointed 
and hurt. And sometimes we actually bring harm to ourselves in that pursuit. And that's what the, the Buddha talked about, that is ignorance, delusion. Seeing, investing your happiness in something that can't is delusion in the mind. And so in meditation, what we're trying to do is invest our happiness in our practice or, or in our ability to be wise and compassionate with whatever situation we're in. And you can see if you're developing wisdom, for instance, or compassion, you can see how much more useful and reliable that is than if we're relying on getting this new car having sex with somebody or something like that. And, we, and that's what we think is actually going to bring us happiness. But inevitably, that's going to bring disappointment. You know? Inevitably. If we're counting on it to last. You know, we might really enjoy it while it's happening. But then oftentimes there's an attachment to it. And as soon as that attachment kicks in, there's suffering. And oftentimes there's attachment even before we experience it. And so we do unskillful things to get it. You know, right, exactly, exactly. In that, in that world, that happens a lot. So that's, but pleasure doesn't inherently need to turn into something painful if we understand the nature of pleasure, which is that it's not a refuge. You know, it's not a reliable refuge, pleasure. It can be enjoyed and appreciated. It's a nice aspect of life, but it's not a refuge that's going to, a reliable refuge that's going to bring us peace or happiness. That's not its nature, no matter what we think about it. You know, no matter how much we invest in it, no matter how much we convince ourselves, the nature of pleasure is that it's not going to provide a lasting refuge. Okay. At least that's according to the Buddhist teachings. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Mm. And loneliness has been a big one, big, big, big one. Um, but also the feeling, I am a person who started um, with the death of my mother in 89, it was. I got involved with the Dharma Dhatu and I practiced quite regularly there. Then I you know, went through a period where I moved out here from California and I had trouble finding a sangha that felt like that. Um, and, you know, I had transportation issues, I had these issues, that issues, financial mm -hmm. issues. So all along the path, I've been a very inconsistent practitioner. I've been mm -hmm. on one three-day retreat. Mm -hmm. You know, that's it. But I've just plugged along, I've Good. plugged along, and plugged along. Yeah, that's great. And, and I guess in the back of my head was sort of the same, the same as a musician. It's like, oh, well, if I just practiced harder, then I would be da-da-da-da-da-da. And so the idea has always been, oh, well, if I actually sat on my cushion every day, then I would do, then I would be da-da-da-da-da, and then I would be entitled to all of these things like going off on, you know, to Burma or whatever. And, be. and just recently I was listening to someone who's relatively new who had a hell of a lot more discipline than I did, you know, who had been on a retreat for days and days and days and started listening to their insights as opposed to remembering my own when I first started. Mm -hmm. And listening to them and realizing, they just don't get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and experiencing a sense of delusionment or discouragement, like, well, you know, here I haven't been practicing that hard. Like, what, what's the point of practicing hard on the cushion if 
if I'm not going to get it in life, or you know, what, what what is the relationship to the cushion in life if people can sit for that long and not get it? But I thought you said the person was a relative beginner. I you maybe I answered my own question there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And even, see, to me, even if you aren't consistent, like, you, like you're saying, you haven't been consistent in the formal practice, mm -hmm. still, uh, you know, a lot of that sitting early on and, and you know, a lot of it is how you conceive of practice. Mm -hmm. You know, you know uh, practice is formless in some ways, you know. I mean, it, it's really a question of just trying to wake up where you are. And the formal practice can help a lot. The sitting practice definitely can help a lot. Doing retreats sometimes <laughs> can help be very helpful. And... Practicing with groups can be helpful sometimes, and finding a community that supports you can be helpful sometimes, and all of that. But the fact is, my guess is, you, you know, you've been trying to wake up, you know, whether you're sitting or not, and that, that there's an orientation there, and there's a maturity that can come out of that, and an awareness, and it might not be pizzazzy, you know, or like these big insights that might, you know, you might hear about, like explosions of clarity or whatever it might be that we fantasize about. Does that help you? <laughs> Let it go. <laughs> Let it go. There's always somebody who's an older yogi than you. I tell you, doesn't mean much actually. Actually, in the in the status world, uh, it really doesn't actually. Old yogis can get just as stuck. I've learned things from beginners. You know, sometimes beginners just have an incredible attitude and a fresh way of, of relating to things and make discoveries that I wish older students would be around to hear. You know, I sometimes think older students should come to my beginner class. Because, you know, they, they, a lot of learning can happen when people's attention is very fresh and they're just making these discoveries that they never knew, you know. And, and, and sure, there can be a lot of delusion, but a lot of unclarity and not understanding the framework. But there's also something that can come out of somebody who's relatively new. But just doing a couple retreats, uh, you know, even if you pack it in in a year or two years and you do like tons of retreats and you go to Burma and all that, it, it's still maturing in practice generally takes time yeah exactly it takes a develop it's a development and and sure you can you can pack it in but still in terms of how it affects your life and and practice being non-fragmented in other words seeing that life is practice and developing the capacity to practice whatever situation you're in not just on a cushion uh, that that really develops over time uh, with, with with practice as long as you have that orientation where you're always trying to wake up Yeah, do we want to just talk about that for a minute or not? Yeah, can we? Yeah, we sure can. Yeah, loneliness is tough. Yeah. Yeah, it's painful. Um, you got to get to know it, though. You got to get to know it. The, the problem with loneliness really is, is our relationship to it. That's really the problem. It's in and itself is not a problem, but it's the relationship to it. So that's, that's to me, that's the work of meditation or the work of dharma is looking at when that feeling of loneliness arises, you know, what do I do with it? Mm -hmm. You know? And, and that's an interesting arena and one that really we have to get to know very closely. That's why it's important not to push those feelings of loneliness away. That's a strong tendency, is when we feel lonely, we pick up the phone, we do something to get that, those feelings of loneliness because they feel uncomfortable. We're afraid of them, those feelings. We're afraid... We're going to get depressed or go into despair. And sometimes we do. You know, if we get caught in that state of mind and it's a predominant state, it certainly can lead to despair. 
painful, incredible despair and loneliness, and, and people hurt themselves sometimes from that intense feeling of loneliness. But um, you can't prevent it from arising. And I think, has anybody in this room never felt lonely? How about like in the, even in just in the last month or two? Has anybody has not had a feeling, one moment of loneliness? Sure, it's common, common. There's a half a hand up there, <laughs> or maybe that's a tap. Uh, yeah, that's fine if you didn't, but the point is it's very common to have that experience. But we have a very complicated relationship to loneliness. For instance, in this culture, it's seen as a really bad thing. So there's a lot of judgments about it. And oftentimes there's a sense of claiming it as me or mine. So it's my loneliness, my feelings of loneliness, rather than just loneliness. You know? I mean, because if you went around the room and you had people describe it, I think most people would describe it very similarly, what it feels like. You know? And so what we can transform is our relationship to it so that when loneliness does arise, it's less of a threat, it's less able to seduce us and get caught in that particular state of mind. And then it begins to lose its power and it actually passes more quickly because of that. But it's our relationship to it that actually creates a tremendous amount of suffering around that particular state of mind. And that relationship is very unconscious and very complex. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on around that feeling of loneliness you know, that needs to be examined. But if, and so when I say, when, I, when, I, when people report loneliness, I say, well, first thing you want to do is actually just feel it. You know, just feel what it means to feel lonely. Because we put a label on it very quickly. But what does it actually mean to feel lonely? And how does that feel in your body or energy-wise? Or what conditions does it arise under? You know, that's something helpful to look at because it's not always there, you know. It, but one can actually feel lonely in a crowd, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. One can feel lonely at night and one can feel lonely when you're alone. Or one can feel lonely when one life is changing and things seem very unpredictable. You don't know where a particular relationship is going or where your life is going and it can be a feeling of loneliness or separation. And so it arises under certain conditions, and it's very helpful to begin to, to see what those conditions are, and then to see if you can settle. Remember I said that whole thing around being allowing. It's extremely helpful if you can just allow those feelings to be there, but that doesn't mean getting caught or stuck in those feelings. Sometimes you need to act. In other words, calling a friend isn't always a bad idea. But calling a friend in the first second that you feel lonely is not a good idea. It's not a good idea. It's much better to hang out with it for a little while and then decide to call that friend because then you're giving yourself a chance to experience it. And you know it's not just, you're not just moving out of aversion, but it might be the wise thing to do in that particular moment in time to bring balance to the mind. Yeah, one more and then we'll end it. I certainly feel aversion and, uh, and I'm very aware of it. Um, so aversion is what for you? Is um, it? Like, aversion of certain um, thoughts, especially like being stuck. Like or impatience or something? Impatience. Like, uh-huh, or okay. Oh, I'm, I'm in this again. I'm doomed. Um, yeah, discouragement, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. Been, right now, and I am, you know, very faithful to my practice and at times confused, but I keep going. That's one, at least one's constant with that practice. And I let things arise, but then it gets really overwhelming. Yeah. 
and I wonder if you could say something. I came to your talk because I actually have a physical ailment with my heart right now, mm. which I'm working on. It's, there's a lot of confusion about the treatment. Yeah. Let's call them just palpitations. For oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's very unpredictable. It brings a lot of emotion. Sure. A lot of being overwhelmed. A lot of anxiety, yeah, I believe so. A lot of anxiety. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet I want to sit with it. And I've made changes to my diet. I've, I've Good. made changes to um, listening some activity. Are you taking medicine too? Some. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. and, I've, and I've also decided not to go with the medical treatment completely. I've done, done some, but I'm get, uh, embarking on Chinese medicine. Good. 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 But that is very uncertain. Yeah, I mean, sure. It brings up enormous fear. And what I'm asking is. Is there a lot of emotional discharge coming up out of all those changes? Uh, one thought that got reinforced was the acupuncturist is not a therapist, but she's very, she can be judgmental. That's the way I see it. And she says, I don't understand how you, after all these years of therapy, how you could still be hung up on your mother. Something like that. <laughs> and I'm saying, it sounds pretty judgmental. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I found myself being wise, saying, yes, it looks that way, because right now you see me in my words, and that's the way it looks. But afterwards, it just comes like, woof, like I can just repeat that as a, as a record, because it's... it's you mean, in other words, you absorb that I message absorb or something. I absorb that, because mm -hmm. I'm so um, right. vulnerable right now. Yeah, well... And then I'm like, oh, I, I don't want that, but yet I want the acupuncture, so... Yeah. In other words, right now, I... I, I what about I'm silent like, acupuncture? Is that possible? <laughs> yes, that's what I'm going to... I, I would do that. I'd push for that, actually. Yeah, well, of course you do. Of course you do. I mean, I, I would feel vulnerable, too. So, yeah. Do you have any word of wisdom of what I can do to protect myself from that vulnerability of being so sensitive to people's judgments or people will say, do you still have that thing? Are the Chinese herbs working for you? And that reinforce, actually, doubt instead of everyone... If I share something that I think a friend is going to be supported, the next minute, they, their own fear might come in. And I'm mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so well, like right now you're unusually vulnerable, yes. correct? But, but you, you're not unfamiliar with that feeling? No. Okay. So, so there's a, there is a pattern there. But pattern it's much strong, but the impact of that is much stronger now. Because you're so much more open and vulnerable, right, exactly. So I would say that, you know, the, the wisdom piece that needs to happen is, is you kind of need to know how to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. you know. And taking care of yourself isn't necessarily just taking care of your body, mm -hmm. uh, but taking care of your emotional well-being also. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, to me, it would depend on the situation that you're in. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I kind of mean that, you know, like with the acupuncturist, the joke about silence, but it's kind of a little like that, you know, where, well, one is, Reminding yourself that you are vulnerable, that you are more vulnerable than usual. That's helpful to do that. Right, exactly. So, so that, you know, if you know that you're going to be more vulnerable, it might, be, it might allow you to hold it, what the reactions that are coming up, with a little less judgment and actually with a little less, like, absorbing it, you know? It, it, like that self-knowing piece of just knowing the fact that you're really vulnerable. So that means you have to kind of take care of yourself. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't spend 
necessarily a lot of time with people who are really going to challenge you, you know, that way. But sometimes yeah. it comes out of, I'm not expecting it. Right. And so you have to kind of deal with the consequences of that, for sure. Absolutely. And, and to me, the practice is looking at, you know, one's reactions and, and, and being very patient with that process, given how sensitive you are, you don't then want to start with some kind of having some agenda that it shouldn't, that you shouldn't be reactive or that you should be experiencing something other than you are. But you do need to know how to hold it. And one thing I would do is I would spend time in meditation developing more calm and more relaxation. And I would do things that nurtured that quality in, the, in your mind in general. You know, whether it's walking in nature, whether it's being outdoors, whether it's hanging out with a friend who is non-judgmental, you know, doing things that are soothing and relaxing. I would absolutely spend a lot of my energy doing that because I think that's what you need to do to take care of yourself, you know, to, to keep that system in balance. You know, and that will help your heart, I'm sure, but it'll also help you protect yourself some during this time, you know, because you really do, really do have to learn how to protect yourself. But one way of protecting yourself is recognizing that you are vulnerable and accepting that fact. That's the hard part. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I hear. Right. Exactly. It's accepting that. And see, I have no problem accepting that. You know? No, I mean, you know? So you do the same thing. You know? Accept it. You know? Right now, you're dealing with a physical condition that's obviously impacting you emotionally. And it would. The heart, give me a break. Right? You know? So, you know, take care of yourself that way. You know, if you had the flu or a cold, you'd be staying indoors, you'd be drinking fluids, all that. Well, this is something a little bit more complicated. I do a lot of that. What? I do a lot of that. Uh-huh. Taking care of myself. Um, Good. More time, and then I, and then I lose it. I don't, yeah, I know. You know. I know. I know. It sounds challenging, for sure. That's yeah, cool. yeah. So, in your practice, I would... Do you do metta practice at all? The practice of loving yes. kindness? Yes, okay. I do. And, and on the heart and other organs. Good. Good. Great. Well, you're doing what you can do, it sounds like. It is unpredictable, is the word. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I hear it. Yeah. Okay. yeah, take care, okay. So, why don't we just sit for a minute? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.